You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner, 18 lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 17, given on January 17, 1921. Let me begin by returning to a topic that might lead to misunderstandings should one or another of the esteemed members of the audience ever have occasion to think further about the things that have been the subject of these lectures. The point is that you have to imagine the plane in which I'm drawing the lemniscate, see figure one, rotating around the axis of the lemniscate, that is around the line joining the two foci, or call it what you will, so that actually I would have to draw the lemniscate in three-dimensional space. What I'm drawing here, see figure one, is the two-dimensional projection of it. That's the kind of lemniscate you need to imagine when contemplating the figures we've drawn to accompany previous discussions. For example, when you're tracing the human skeletal and nervous systems, even the circulation of the blood can be traced in this way. You have to imagine it all not in a two-dimensional plane, but rather in three-dimensional space. Thus the figure eight, the lemniscate, is legitimate, but as I said before, you're really dealing with geometrical figures of rotation. This same principle also underlies the topic that I just covered. There's a certain sense in which the structures of our human constitution, in the nervous and sensory systems on the one hand, and in the metabolic system and limbs on the other, are mutually related according to the principle of a lemniscate of rotation. We were obliged to seek the criterion for determining the spatial movements of our earth in changes that go on within humanity itself. We humans are, after all, in some way, united with the earth spatially. As long as we merely look at the movements from outside, then, as I said before, we never get beyond the relativity of the movements. If, however, we ourselves are taking part in the movements, and in doing so we perceive internal changes in the moving body, then in these inner changes we can, as it were, take a reading of the movements and know them to be real. We pointed out that in the processes of human metabolism we have an inner criterion for determining our own voluntary movement, which might be described as moving our center of gravity parallel to the surface of the earth. Then there are processes, very similar to these metabolic processes, that accompany our voluntary movements. I mean the phenomena of fatigue occurring in the course of the day that is, while the sun changes its position in the heavens. They give us a criterion for determining that we undoubtedly describe a movement in cosmic space together with the earth. 
Thus we can conclude that what takes place between the head and the rest of our human constitution in a vertical direction, when we stand upright, takes place in a direction parallel to the surface of the earth, that is, in the direction characteristic of the animal spine when we're sleeping. Comparing human metabolism in sleeping and in waking, respectively, we have indeed a kind of reagent we can use to determine the relationships between the movements of the sun and the movements of the earth. From here we can now move on to the other kingdoms of nature. We see the plant maintaining a radial orientation, the same orientation we human beings maintain in waking life. However, when comparing our own vertical orientation with that of plants, we have to be clear that we can't think of them as having the same sign. We need to give them opposite signs. There are many compelling reasons for us to do this, for giving human vertical orientation a sign that is the opposite of the growing plants. There are many reasons. I will refer only to one such reason mentioned before. The process of vegetal growth, culminating as it does in the organic deposition of carbon, is cancelled out within human beings. It needs to be made negative, as it were. The very thing that the plant consolidates into itself, humans need to expel. If we indicate the direction of vegetal growth in this way, then this and other considerations will oblige us to indicate the corresponding direction within the human constitution in this way. See figure 2, an arrow pointing up, an arrow pointing down. So now we have to ask ourselves, just what does this direction represent? This direction represents something connected with our process of growing from year to year, as long as we're still growing. Thus it represents a process in us, which is similar to that in the plant. So the only way to conceptualize this properly is to say that the plant grows radially upward from the earth toward cosmic space, but that we have to think about ourselves in a different way. There's our physically visible growth, but we have to think of something supra-physical and invisible growing down to meet it growing into us, as it were, from above downward. It's here we need to look for an understanding of the verticality of the human form. We need to imagine that while humans no doubt grow upward, at the same time a kind of invisible plant-like formation grows down to meet us. It's a vegetal form with its roots unfolding upward toward the head and its flowers facing downward. It's a negative plant-forming process that stands in opposition to the human-forming process. So, it's along these lines that we have to decide which movements are similar in kind. Just as the plant grows away from the earth, so we have to imagine this supra-physical, vegetal, human growing in from cosmic space, from the sun toward the center of the earth. So, that's what we have. Parenthesis again, I can only indicate the general outlines. You'll be able to follow them up in the light of empirical phenomena. Close parenthesis. In what we see here as a line of like direction, a line of growth, 
but in the one case striving positively outward, in the other negatively back and downward. It's here that we should seek the line connecting earth and sun. You can't think of it in any other way. To imagine it this way is comparatively simple, even trivial. In this very line, you can see the line of movement, both of the earth and of the sun. The lines of movement, both of the earth and of the sun, are to be sought in the line that joins the two. Moreover, the line will always prove to be vertical in relation to the surface of the earth. Really, I ought to devote many lectures to the theme I'm putting forward here. I do, however, still want to give you something of substance, as it were, which you can then follow up. I want to lead you to a certain result, although it will have to follow rather abruptly upon the more methodical reflections we have pursued until now. So, in this way, we find ourselves compelled to imagine there's a certain sense in which the earth and the sun are actually moving in the same orbit, and yet again, in a way, antithetical to each other. You'll arrive at a more substantial concept if you recall what was said yesterday. The constitution of the sun, I said, with the sun's nucleus and then the photosphere, atmosphere, chromosphere, and corona, has to be imagined in the following way. While on the earth craters are formed by outward thrusts and movements, and we think therefore of processes that work from within outward, fundamentally the same is true even of the tides, in the sun we have to go from outside inward. The sun releases its streams and currents from the surrounding periphery inward, toward the interior, toward the solar nucleus. In a sense, therefore, we see what's going on in the sun's environment, as we would see things happening on earth, if we were situated in the earth's center and looking outward. Only then we would have bent the convex into the concave. Looking into the sun, it's as though we were witnessing earthly processes from the earth's center. Only, for this comparison, the earth's inner surface, which is concave, must be bent convex, so that the interior of the earth becomes the exterior of the sun. Taking your start from this idea, you'll be able to realize that earth and sun form a polarity. And it's also important to realize how the sun's constitution again derives from the earth's by a turning inside out by the same process I used to explain the relationship of the human metabolic and limb systems to the long or hollow bones on the one hand and of the nervous and sensory systems to the cranial bones on the other. Only then is our orientation as humans within the larger cosmos revealed in all its depths. This polarity within human nature stands in the same relationship as the polarity between sun and earth. Now, I'm going to pursue a line of thought which may look problematical to some of you, yet you would feel it was entirely sound if we had time to go into all the intermediate steps. However, as I said just now, I want to give you something substantial. We have to look for a curve that makes it possible for us to think the movements of sun and earth taking their course 
in one and the same path, and yet in some sense contrary-wise. This curve can be determined unambiguously. See figure 3. Again, if you envisage all the relevant geometrical loci that are to be found in this way, the curve will be uniquely determined. You need to think of it like this. A rotating lemniscate which at the same time moves on through space. Imagine the earth to be at some point of this lemniscate line, twisting like a screw, and the sun at another, with the earth following the sun in its movement. So then you have the movement of the earth upward, the sun downward. They pass each other. Taking all the valid criteria into account, This is the only way to conceive the real underlying movements both of the earth and of the sun. There is no other alternative than to imagine it arising in this way. Earth and sun are moving, following one another, along a twisting, screw-like lemniscate. What's then projected into space arises out of this. Here's the line of sight, ES in figure 3. You're projecting the sun in this position, S. After that, you may assume the sun has gone up here, S sub 1. You get the apparent position, including all the relevant and necessary factors, simply as the projection that results when earth and sun move past each other along this line. But you have to include many corrections, the Bessel equations, and so on, if you want your calculation to turn out correctly. You have to include in the geometrical loci everything that's really given. And you also have to take into account what I mentioned before, how contemporary astronomy uses three suns in its calculations, the real sun, the dynamical mean sun, and the astronomical mean sun. Two of them are only imaginary suns. Of course, only the real sun is actually there. For our determination of time, however, we reckon first with the dynamical mean sun, which coincides with the true sun only at perigee and apogee, but otherwise deviates from the real sun. And then we have the third sun, which coincides with the other only at the equinoxes. All you really need to do is to correct the accepted notion of the sun's apparent path along these lines. If you add this all up and work out the calculation, then you'll certainly get this result, one that's in full agreement with what we also found by observing human beings' relationship to the cosmos. Now, we need to relate this curve in the right way to our solar system. I'll begin by drawing the ordinary hypothetical form of the solar system, see figure 4, omitting the two outermost planets for today, since they're not essential in this context. Here, not to scale, it doesn't matter, are the orbit of Saturn, the orbit of Jupiter, the orbit of Mars, the orbit of the Earth and the Moon, the orbit of Venus, the orbit of Mercury and the Sun. Somewhere along these orbits, we would then find the respective planets. Let's make an initial assumption that this is a valid perspective from some aspect or other. The question then is how the path of Sun and Earth, as we have just described it, fits in with this picture if we take what's there as a perspectival image. 
Work out the calculation in the way indicated, and you'll find that it fits in as follows. We have to draw the path of the earth, with the earth tending in a sense toward the place where the sun has been, and then the sun tending toward the place where the earth has been. We thus get the one half of the lemniscate, earth, sun, earth, sun. When this has gone around, then it goes on, see figure 5. They move past each other, as you see. Thus, we obtain the true path of earth and sun if we alternately imagine the earth to be at the place where in our usual drawings we are accustomed to put the sun, and the sun at the place where we are accustomed to put the earth. The fact is we don't get the true relation between the motions of the earth and the sun if we assume either the one or the other to be at rest. We have to imagine both to be in movement, whereby the one follows the other. Yet at the same time they go past each other. So then we have to imagine it such that seen in perspective the sun is alternately in the center of our planetary system and then again the earth is where we normally conceive the sun to be. They change places, taking turns, as it were. But it's complicated, because needless to say, in the meantime, the planets have also changed their situation, which gives rise to considerable complication. However, if I initially assume the validity of this perspectival drawing, see figure 4, then I'll draw it thus, sun in the center. Then I get the other valid arrangement, as it were, by drawing the ideal sequence of the planets with the Earth here, Earth in the center, and then Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. You see, there's a way in which the perspectives seduce us into setting up an extremely simple system, whereas, in fact, it's by no means simple. It's as though, with respect to the planets, Earth and Sun were taking turns occupying the center of the system. I confess that it's not at all easy for me to be telling you these things, which people today are still likely to consider fantastical. We don't have time to calculate this with all the mathematical frills, but the calculation is possible. I was asked to explain the relationship of astronomy to other scientific disciplines, so now, at the end of these lectures, I have no choice but to synthesize the whole picture as clearly as possible. Tracing the path of Earth and Sun, now, once again, apart from the planetary system as a whole, we have then to think of a lemniscate in which the Earth is following the Sun. Here it is, projected, see figure 6. Incidentally, you may also see in this a possibility of giving meaning to the idea of gravitation, the one pulls the other along after it. That's the underlying principle. If you think of it in this way, you'll no longer need the somewhat questionable duality of gravitational and tangential forces, because here they're reduced to a single force. Think it through carefully and you'll find that it's so. You have to admit this is quite a problematical concept within the Newtonian paradigm. We're supposed to think of the sun in the center and the planets around it, which are supposed to, to give a kind of shove in the tangential direction, all of which needs to be assumed if one wants to hold fast to the Newtonian system. Taking this then to be the path of earth and sun, then if you wish to bring out in perspective, along with the course of earth and sun, 
the paths traced by the other planets. You have to imagine the paths of the inferior planets such that they would be drawn like this. If this, V, is the line of sight, then you'll be able to arrive at the lemniscate as a perspectival formation when the planet occupies a different location within the orbit. The line of sight is here, V. In this position, S, we get the loop, while these two branches, U, will appear to run out into infinity. On the other hand, taking this once more to be the path of Earth and Sun, and this the path of the inferior planets, you have to imagine the corresponding paths of the superior planets are lemniscates like this. Now, I would have to go on drawing upward, but the nearest part would be like this, and now this lemniscate progresses, for forcing its way like this through this lemniscate that represents the superior planets. We have found the orbits of the planets and also the orbit shared by the Sun and the Earth to be a determinate system of lemniscates. Such are the orbits of the planets. Such also is the shared orbit of Earth and Sun. Now you'll easily be able to harmonize what I've presented schematically here with the fact that viewed perspectively, the loops of Venus and Mercury are in conjunction and that we have to see those of Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn as in opposition. Above all, you'll gain insight into the connection between the planets as such and human beings. You need merely to look at this picture and you'll say to yourselves, what you have here in Mercury and Venus is a direction that's near to the path of the Earth and the Sun. It's in the cosmic neighborhood, so to speak, of the path of Earth and Sun. Thus it behaves in such a way that it has to do with a radial line that basically represents the connection between the Earth and the Sun. As against this, the other planets, those of the outer or superior planets, they come into consideration more by virtue of their lateral or spherical orientation. The effects they call forth are closer to that which unfolds its movements peripherally. Thus we can conclude that what we behold in Venus and Mercury is far more akin to what's living as a cosmic reality within us, ourselves, while that which we see in the orbits of the superior planets is more akin to the realm of fixed stars in general. Here, too, we reach a kind of qualitative valuation of what's actually playing itself out in the cosmos. Of course, the lines I have been drawing are only meant schematically. Actually, what one would have to say is that an inferior planet has an orbit that makes a loop, the center of which is the shared orbit of Earth and Sun itself, and that a superior planet takes up the shared orbit of Earth and Sun into its own loop. That's what's essential. In itself, the thing is so complicated that the best we can do is to form schematic representations of it. You see, from this, however, unwelcome as the news may be to some, we need to get away from a principle that entered into explanations of nature in the early modern period. I mean, the principle of parsimony, it gradually became a habitual assumption that the simple explanation is the right one. 
Even today, anything that isn't simple enough will be severely censured. But nature isn't at all simple. On the contrary, we might go so far as to say that nature, the real world, is that which looks simple at first glance, but turns out on examination to be complex. What appears simple on the surface is actually a mere semblance. It wasn't by any means my prime intention to have my lectures culminate in this way. I didn't set out as a matter of principle to make pronouncements that fly in the face of accepted notions. We really want only to get at the truth. But the assumptions underlying the modern astronomical paradigm paper over so many inner contradictions that in the end, having studied current astronomy, one comes away dissatisfied. It begins by assuming hypothetically the model I have also indicated in this sketch, the elliptic orbits of the planets, the sun in one focus, and so on. Because one has no other choice, the planetary orbits are then assumed to be in different planes, inclined variously in relation to each other. The varying inclinations are a function of the perspective. All these complications are a matter of perspective. Yet the actual calculations are not performed upon this simple solar system that is taught to children at school, and they then retain for life. In practice, they take their start from the Tychonic system. Readers aside, spelled T-Y-C-H-O-N-I-C. End of readers aside. And then they have to make one correction after another. If someone uses the accepted formula to calculate, say, the position of the sun at a given time, the math doesn't come out right. Proceeding in this way, what ends up standing where the real sun is supposed to be is either the dynamical mean sun or the astronomical mean sun, which is to say one or another thought construct. Right, that's just how it is, totally imaginary entities. And then they have to make corrections in order for it to come out right. What we need in order to find the truth lies hidden in those corrections. Instead of holding fast to the conventional formula and being led to fictitious entities, we should bring movement into the formula themselves, make them inherently mobile, and then draw curves accordingly. If you did so, you would soon reach the system drawn here, though, I repeat, the drawings are only schematic. So you see, the most important thing to me has been to call forth within you an experience of the harmony between the human constitution and the structure of the cosmos. If you've really been following thus far, you can't possibly regard this harmony as a sin against the spirit of science. When the transition emerged from the Ptolemaic to the Copernican paradigm, at the same time a profound change was taking place simultaneously in the whole way of interpreting the connection between human beings and the celestial phenomena. In very ancient times, though from a different perspective, so to speak, as mentioned a few days ago, humanity still had transparent ideas about the harmony between the movements in the heavens and the human gestalt. What they had then was more instinctive, but if it's raised into consciousness, however, then it becomes the true spirit of modern science, to which we too must be faithful. 
all the more so when venturing into this problematic and challenging terrain. There's actually no difference between the usual way of applying mathematics and the way we're applying this qualitative mathematics, which we first had to develop gradually, to the human constitution and to the celestial phenomena. But please note, during the same period when the transition was unfolding from the old heliocentric system to the new heliocentric system, a chasm opened up within the evolution of human cognition, namely the bridges between the physically sense-perceptible, the natural order, and the moral order were demolished. In other lectures I have often mentioned how we in our time are torn asunder in this way. On the one hand, our theoretical ideas about nature lead us to conceive some primordial cosmic entity in the beginning, from which the universe was supposed to have unfolded by purely natural events. And then, that's how the earth evolved, and we along with it. And it's supposed to continue in the same way, in accordance with purely natural lawfulness, and then come to an end. And we stand in the middle of all this. Out of our inner life there arise ethical impulses, and nobody knows whence they come. But when they think in a dualistic way, everyone is certain about one thing. Someday a big grave will be waiting for just these moral impulses. That's how people think when there are so few bridges between the natural order and the moral order. This bridge between the natural order and the moral order simply must be found again. We have to put ourselves into a position again where we can conceive of the natural order and the moral order as being in harmony with each other. On other occasions I have spoken about ways in which this transition can be sought. It really can be found by way of anthroposophical spiritual science. At the moment I want to draw your attention only to a specific aspect of it. For the rift between the natural order and the moral order makes itself felt in diverse realms, and among others it affects our present subject. Here, too, in the evolution of humanity, the natural and the ethical aspects have in a certain way fallen asunder. The ethical aspect has been cultivated in astrology, the natural aspect in an astronomy bereft of spirit. There is no need for me to persuade you that astrology as pursued today has nothing whatsoever to do with science, as it's conventionally understood. I don't need to prove to you that this is an aberration on the one side. Yet on the other side, our astronomical system of the universe, as we call it, also involves an aberration. In all these perspectival lines, or, if you wish, projective lines, there, that are conventionally drawn to represent our solar system, we are not dealing with realities at all. Nor are the lines real that arise when we observe a further resultant movement, built up again of many components, namely the sun's own movement, accompanied by the whole solar system. All these things are built up of very many components. And because we are in the midst of relativities, and we need to be able to hold onto some criterion that can lead us to a real understanding of the curves. The criterion may seem vague to many people, yet it's there and it can lead us 
to an understanding of the curves in question. We have to penetrate this secret. Why is it that humans have an inner need to lie down horizontally in sleep, and thereby escape in sleep from the line connecting the earth and the sun? Just as we can carry out our voluntary movements only while moving our center of gravity perpendicular to the line joining the earth and the sun, so it is, in the case of our involuntary movements, that we can carry them out only by lying down, orienting ourselves perpendicular to the path of the earth and the sun. If we want to escape from the effects of voluntary movement, if we want what would otherwise work itself out in voluntary movement to work inside us and to bring about a metabolic interchange between our body and our head, we must lie down. We must align ourselves in this way. Thinking in this manner, you'll be able to find a bridge to the other way human beings orient themselves. And from the orientations that are ascertainable within human beings, which can be derived from the forces shaping human nature, you'll be able to compose the curves that are really there in the movement of heavenly bodies. Granted, it's not as easy as what's done with mere telescopes and measured angles, yet it's the only possible way to find the relationship between human beings and the celestial phenomena. The end of Lecture 17